So we'd like to welcome you to our 184th, I can't believe it, 184th sequential monthly webinar of our TMIT Global uh, Research Testbed. Uh, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Many of you are going to be attending this uh, uh, after the fact, and uh, so there'll be additional materials that you'll find on uh, the website. My name is Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global, and uh, I'll be moderating today uh, this wonderful uh, uh, speaker and panel. Uh, if you, for those of you that are returning to the website to see the, uh, to uh, review materials, uh, you'll be able to go to the website and actually view the uh, program in entirety. We have a couple of reactors who uh, are on duty today with uh, patients, and so they'll be coming in at, at a later date. Uh, however, those of you that want to download the slides, if you go to safetyleaders.org, uh, and in the upper right-hand corner, uh, you can click on our webinar today and you'll be able to download the slides. And then we'll have additional resources as well. We're really thrilled to have uh, a great group uh, today uh, of, uh, with uh, Lacey Hart leading the way. I'm going to cover things that are in the news. And then we have uh, physicians, uh, nurses. Uh, we've got uh, two physicians that will respond after the, the fact. Um, a nurse preventionist, and uh, most of, uh, importantly, uh, we have the voice of the patient. Um, Jennifer Dingman is the founder of Pulse, a folk, an area focused on, our group focused on medical errors. We've been working with Jennifer for over 12 years. We've met every other Saturday with a group of family members who have lost a loved one to um, a, a medical error, uh, a system failure, um, any form of uh, harm to their uh, families. And Jennifer has uh, served on a number of federal uh, uh, agency task forces. She's been a co-author with us in the uh, National Quality Forum Safe Practices representing patients. And we always want to hear from our patients and, and their families uh, to set our compass for our programs of all of our webinars. And uh, Jennifer was uh, had to attend a funeral today. So I'm going to uh, be... Um, uh, having her uh, uh, open us with a recorded message from last night. And uh, we're thrilled to be working with her. Most noteworthy was the fact that this Saturday morning group uh, was given the credit for getting the hacks, the hospital acquired conditions uh, across the goal line as a pay for performance program with the federal government. And so uh, Jennifer uh, helped develop the, the grassroots uh, team um, that's led to hundreds of thousands of uh, lives saved and billions of dollars that have been saved uh, that have been documented by our government. So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jennifer Dingman, who has uh, been a long-standing leader in patient safety, served on national committees, national boards, is a published author. Uh, most importantly, she's been our voice of the patient throughout this coronavirus crisis. Uh, she is the 2018 winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for great work in uh, national programs that have saved uh, many, many lives and many, many uh, millions of dollars. Uh, Jennifer, would you please set our course heading for today? Thank, thank you, Dr. Denham. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's program about how stressed out our emergency safety net is. This is really, really important for all of our participants. I urge you to please share the future video with your colleagues, friends, and families. And again, thank you all for being here. And I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Benham. 
So uh, we're really, really pleased to have uh, uh, have this uh, wonderful team that have uh, uh, joined us today to be part of our program. Uh, we do we do have a, mi a minor presence on social media, and we thank you for uh, taking a look at those addresses. We just want to remind everybody that our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. We try to live our values, uh, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We don't live up to them every day, but we certainly try to, and we've learned a lot about uh, our core values. Uh, um, we, you'll see on slide eight, our disclosure statement that no product, no medical device or pharmaceutical product funding company direct, indirect or affiliated in any way has funded this. Uh, this program has been funded by private philanthropy uh, of uh, uh, families. And uh, uh, so my job right now is to just set the stage with a couple of just uh, in the moment uh, thoughts. Our MedTech program, which uh, merges uh, the medical best practices and uh, tactical uh, practices, um, uh, was established in 2015, focused on these eight leading causes of death. And then what happened when COVID struck, uh, we uh, launched a community of practice to focus on COVID. For those of you that would like to, we have um, uh, six articles uh, in Campus Safety Magazine and a seventh that will be published shortly. Uh, and you can go to our website to take a look at it. But that's uh, um, not our topic today. We just wanted to just remind everyone that failure to rescue is the topic. And, and I think, Lacey, we have really failed to rescue our caregivers from the dilemmas that they face. So we're really excited about that. Our program uh, for the eight leading causes of death have been focused on what to do before EMS arrives. What can non-medical, non-nursing, non-EMT people do before EMS arrives? Uh, we're thrilled to say that we've had multiple lives saved. And the reason that I bring this up today is, is that the recent articles have shown that, um, that the overdoses and deaths in our young people, in our middle, middle school students and our high school students have tripled over the last two years. Uh, and I, I was just on the phone just before uh, this uh, webinar to talk with uh, Nanette Houseman, who's, uh, who, who lost her son, not from a drug overdose, but a tremendous a traumatic skateboarding accident. But I just want to draw your attention to the fact that fentanyl is a major driver now of, of overdoses in kids. They're downloading these counterfeit medications. This is a slide from the DEA. We won't belabor it, but we in our MedTech moment, we just want to draw your attention. Major crisis. Those of you that have uh, high school students and, and even middle, middle school students and college students, they're ordering these over the web, over Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Um, and we want to draw your attention to, I met with Nanette Houseman yesterday, her son Corey was just in school 15 days, uh, he died uh, uh, of um, uh, a head injury, he was cognizant, he was speaking to the EMTs who uh, picked him up, but because he didn't have a medical power of attorney, they only contacted the family and, uh, after he, he was uh, brain dead, and they didn't have the opportunity in that first period of time to uh, tackle uh, the problem. So what we've done is from the learning that we've undertaken through our leaders in emergency medicine, come up with an emergency checklist, uh, making sure that every everyone over 18 has a medical power of attorney, smartphone notification, 
to be able to turn their smartphone on. Uh, this the EMTs look at this immediately when you're if you're involved in an accident or an emergent come to an emergency. Know your trauma one centers locally, especially in travel, and having medical records uh, in access. So we covered this in prior webinars. I'm just drawing your attention to it because of this opioid issue. And uh, met with Nanette yesterday. Spoke with her this morning, and she's championing the cause. Uh, for uh, those of us uh, who have families uh, with kids that are in college or in high school to really focus on this. This is a major issue. So for those of you that, that are joining us for the first time, um, uh, uh, TMIT Global actually was started in the uh, mid 80s. Um, and we worked in the area of innovation, uh, patient safety and quality. And then um, I had the honor of actually developing the LeapFrog Group uh, focus, the focus on the original, um, uh, the original survey of the uh, NQFSA practices, expanding it from three. And over those years, we've developed now, I mean, we've lost count, we say 500 subject matter experts, and we keep gaining new ones every month. But we've been saying over the last four or five years that we have 500 subject matter experts, and we're so blessed to have them. So one of the initiatives we started over three years ago was that health was our focus, our, our community, a practice focusing on emerging threats, which is right in your crosshairs set, Lacey. Uh, uh, these are emerging threats that should be or are keeping our leaders of our great medical centers up at night. There are about 30 uh, uh, and uh, you know, we always say that data te data tells, but stories sell. These are the, 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 each one of these are stories that we've covered in our Discovery Channel films. Upper left is Julie Tao, who accidentally uh, 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 switched a medication, leading to the death of a 16-year-old Eric Kropp in the lower left-hand corner, who actually signed the paperwork, didn't even prepare the medication that killed a three-year-old Braxton Rowe in the middle, who uh, was released from hospital without having his vital signs really wired in tight and passed away from a tonsillectomy. And then Sue Sheridan, and uh, this is a picture from uh, out where I live here in California of her husband, Pat, who died of a misplaced path report of a, uh, on a um, tumor that he had in his neck after their child sustained uh, uh, damage from cronicterus. Uh, both, both of them were systems uh, issues. And Nancy Conrad in the lower right-hand corner, uh, uh, whose husband was Pete Conrad, the, the third man to walk on the moon. Lacey, in every one of these cases, there is a whole group of caregivers suffering uh, through uh, what happened that led to the death and harm of the patients that are covered there. So uh, we wrote the, the article, Trust, the Five Rights of the Second Victim, um, uh, which was published and focused on uh, how we need to take care of our caregivers. Uh, T, treatment that is just, R, respect, understanding and compassion, use, supportive care, and then transparency and being able to participate in those, uh, in those events. We also, and Lacey, you came to us because uh, of uh, our wonderful friend and wonderful leader and colleague, I call her the, the next Don Berwick, um, uh, and her article had the honor of publishing it when I was uh, the editor-in-chief of Journal of Patient Safety, learning from every death, uh, uh, and focus on this issue of, uh, of the system failures that occur. Unintentional harm is one of the 30 areas. But one of the 30 areas that we identified three years ago was burnout of our caregivers. And so uh, we've done a number of, and we'll, we'll, put, we'll post some of the links to our focus on mind, body, spirit, and why it's so important that to focus on failure to rescue of our caregivers and why your work is so important. But also, 
we identified even before the COVID that readiness for pandemics was one of the issues. And so I just want to then finish my introduction here. I'm, I plan 15 minutes. I'm at 12 minutes, so I'm almost done. Um, we are continuing our monthly webinars on our on COVID to help families. We're thankful to have over 130 experts uh, uh, who uh, from clinical, operational, financial uh, uh, areas and also the leaders that were in our Discovery Channel films, all of them were contributors to our COVID community of practice. Um, we undertook a study of 1,000 families uh, and uh, focused on, on uh, readiness, response, rescue, resilience, uh, uh, and uh, we are very, very blessed to uh, be now publishing that and we'll be reporting on that next month. Uh, we just wanna draw the attention to newcomers that each one of these programs focusing on many of the features of dealing with COVID for essential critical workers uh, uh, over the last 24 months have been produced as 90 minute uh, mini documentaries with slides, uh, video, uh, and really kind of focused on uh, the, the multiple layers. Many of us in patient safety all talk about the uh, Swiss cheese uh, model of uh, James Reason. I had the opportunity to collaborate with James who said, such a humble guy, he said, I know I'm credited with this. However, it was a graduate student that drew my attention to it. And I think we, we have the same sort of challenge as we care for caregivers is not one thing is gonna fit and not one thing is gonna keep us safe. Um, our last webinar was uh, was uh, the next normal, and we draw your attention to that, focused on this BA2 uh, now uh, variant. And as we head forward, we want to draw your attention. And then finally, we keep track. We, we, we find that Dr. Osterholm from the University of Minnesota, hailing from your same state, Lacey, and, uh, and uh, some of your team, um, is probably the best epidemiologist. He's not been wrong in the last 24 months. Uh, and every Thursday puts out uh, uh, a really, really thoughtful uh, podcast to focus on, uh, on, on these areas. Uh, it's such a, a thrill, uh, Lacey, to have you uh, uh, working with us. I want you to add to your bio. Uh, we got together through our work with Gene Huddleston and you as an administrator at the Mayo Clinic. And um, I was on faculty in health services uh, uh, engineering uh, uh, there. And uh, you were a wonderful contributor to the great work that were the mortality reviews that has now expanded. Hopefully you'll be, you've got plenty of time. So we want you to kind of talk maybe a little bit at the end, uh, you know, about what, uh, about that group, uh, that work, and how Gene actually went back and got a degree in engineering to actually measure the the uh, uh, the mortality reviews, and you went back to the board of the Mayo. I think it's a fabulous story about how she's coupled and you together have coupled stories which sell to the data which tells. And it's uh, I, I think the program is just tremendous. I can't think of anything in patient safety that's better. And now uh, getting a divinity degree and now being able to help minister to our, our, our mind, body, and spirit. Uh, I am just so excited to have you uh, tell your story and uh, we'll turn things over to you. Would you like me to advance the slides or would you like to advance them? Um, I'll go ahead and do that. Thank okay, you so I'll much. I'll stop sharing. And I will go ahead and... Oh, there we go. And we will go over to here. So again, thank you so much for having me. Um, mostly thank you for everyone and everyone who will watch this video later. Um, your time is your most precious gift and I appreciate it. 
um, as Dr. Denham said, no, no financial or research uh, conflicts to disclose. Um, any slights I might make to people or organizations is completely unintentional, although it might arise with such a topic. Um, and of course, all the information I share today is evolving, right? As we learn, as things shift um, and change, it, it's going to evolve. Um, and I'm not a mental health provider. So while we're gonna touch on mental health, um, if, if you're in need of mental health support, um, I please encourage you to seek it. And then with that, my foundation or my background, yes, I'm a fourth generation Mayo Clinic employee. Um, so while I am not uh, a healthcare provider, I have been in it my whole life. I ran the halls of Mayo Clinic um, and literally grew up there. Um, and so healthcare delivery is near and dear to my heart. Um, if you look at my LinkedIn though, I love it so much, I want it to be better. And so that's really where I come from. I've had an evolution. Um, I'm usually always at that intersection of the patient, the provider, and the system itself. And so that's really where my perspective is coming from. So I wanna take a moment about compassion. Um, this is something that's interesting. So compassion is actually an act of courage. And if you think of your brain and how it's wired, um, fight or flight, um, to deliver compassion is actually to move towards suffering as opposed to run away from it. So think about that. What kind of humans are taking care of other people in, in dire situations that take something special? Um, it takes a lot of courage, but there's a cost to that caring. There, there is a, a byproduct of that. Um, and often for many of our caretakers and courses was way before COVID, but COVID definitely was a straw that could break the camel's back of this cost. And it's where we lose ourselves and get courage and giving of towards that suffering to the point where we can suffer. And so that's really the part where um, I was drawn to this work and really helping because I'm seeing it being unaddressed. And my fear is we can't lose these people. We can't lose compassion. We can't lose care because bad things are still going to happen in our world. So again, a little bit about what's happening. Um, if you're a caregiver, so if, you're, if your job is caring for others, now we include that to be um, much broader definition than what I ever thought um, possible when I started this work. Um, it's anyone who's now in this position. So it might be a spouse caring for their loved one. It might be the teacher who is now faced with not just teaching children, but with all of the stresses and the um, barriers or hurdles these children face, whether that be they don't have food, they don't have clothing, um, maybe they have a, a tough home life. All of these things trigger um, something in our brain, which is actually a stress response. So that's kind of weird to think about, but compassion is actually a stress response. Now, acting on that compassion is your courage response. And that's that, that you're moving towards it instead of away from it. Now, we think of people in high stress situations, and I look at um, my colleagues, especially those that really are in the emergency department working with her things, you'd think they would be racing and, and worrying and crazy, but they actually are very calm. And that's because when they get into this space, your, your heart slows, you actually get very calm. Your oxytocin and progesterone, they increase 
You get grounded and you prepare for action. But think about that for a minute. What's that doing to your body, right? So when it's all over, you're going to feel it. Just like when you exercise and in the moment you're, you're lifting your weights, you're running on your treadmill, but after you feel it, that's what's happening to our caregivers. And we refer to them as heroes and they are, and we need them, right? Our society, our, our, our very life is reliant on these caregivers, but they're not superheroes. They're human beings. They're living creatures. And this is a, a biological response to caretaking. So they're humans and they need care too. We can't ignore it. They're not robots. They're, they're not these, they're not Superman. They cannot just keep doing this without taking care of themselves, without acknowledging their humanness. Now, thinking of them as resources to our society, thinking of caregivers as a necessary resource. Um, you have to be stewards of that resource. You know, you wouldn't drive your car without roads. Maybe you would. We do out, out in our back country. But for the most part, you aren't going to drive your car without a road. You're not going to ignore your check engine light. You're, only, you're not going to fill your tank half full and then expect to drive it a long way. Same thing in, in healthcare, right? If I'm speaking to you in healthcare, you're not going to deny a full code patient their innovation. You're not going to deny a bedridden patient their pillows or reposition treatment. You're not going to ignore your patients at a high fall risk. So why in the world do we deny this same caretaking or protecting our resources for our depleted caretakers? It makes no sense, logically. So that's, that's when me and others said, enough's enough. We need to care about this. We need to start talking about this. It's also just good sense. It's good business sense. And it's good just if healthcare wants to continue, it actually has an impact on patients, right? So just like your car, if you continue to drive it without oil, your car is not going to drive anymore. Same thing with our human resources. Now, I did say we're wired differently and caretakers are because they go through and their MRI studies show the difference. So people in constant caregiving have a different brain um, because they're firing and using different parts of their machinery. But regardless, when you undergo fatigue and stress, those shut down. So even if you're in a caregiving capacity and you're used to using your brain a certain way to provide that caregiving, when you're in distress, those components shut down. So think of that, and these are the signs then, if you're fatigued or distressed at work as a caregiver, you're going to be forgetful. You might not have your concrete thinking. You might have difficulty concentrating, impaired decision-making. Um, maybe you lose your empathy and compassion, the very thing you went into caretaking for. Um, lots of optimism or decreased optimism, uh, lots of pessimism. Um, and you lose your self-regulation. So think about the clinical consequences of that. If this is how we're driving our cars on empty, these are, the, these are the clinical consequences if we have our personal resources depleted. We're going to have more medical errors, um, suboptimal care, bad experiences. So it, it's, a, it's a both a societal, and if you think of healthcare as a business, a business imperative. But what are we talking about? So looking at as we talk a lot about COVID, 
um, interesting enough, COVID, like I said, it's a straw on the camel's back, but it didn't cause this. Um, it, it didn't, it's, it isn't the cause of how our caregivers are feeling right now. The great resignation, we have labor shortages, talk about burnout, and we do talk about suicide. All of these caretaking, caregiving um, professions have the top suicide rates amongst any other profession. But if you think about all those words, those are all symptoms. Those aren't causes. They're not the root causes. So what aren't we talking about? And for me, what I'm finding as I'm working, and yes, working with Dr. Huddleston has been amazing. So um, that's where working with the safety learning system, going into 150 plus hospitals over the last five years, here's what we don't talk about. We don't talk about the dissonance between why people go into caretaking, why the nurses do what they do, versus the business of healthcare, right? You have this moral dissonance. And then when you add high caseloads, and this COVID did, um, sudden emergencies that we aren't prepared for, we now have moral distress that has led to moral injury. But we're not talking about it, right? We're still just talking about burnout. We're giving yoga classes. Um, I just listening to, you know, I know Chuck, we talked about a, you know, an emergency department that provides a timeout room. That's awesome. Those are great things. But it almost implies like you go get better. We're not going to tackle the dissonance that you're feeling. Right. It's, it, it's almost, it's, I, I, this is where I said, I unintentionally might say things I, I don't mean, but I do mean it. It's like a slap in the face when you're in caregiving and then you're told how to breathe as if you don't know how to breathe. That's not the issue. The issue is that we're struggling with filling out orders, doing, you know, is the reimbursement going to be there? Did we code something properly in the EMR? Did we get through the checklist? But most caregivers are wired because they care. They're taking care of that human. They're saving that life. Um, they're holding that patient's hand. That's, that's how they're wired. So we need to acknowledge how caregivers are wired if we're going to help them refuel and re-energize. Now in my work so far, um, while it's kind of scary how quickly people are leaving or bad things are happening, most um, caregivers that I encounter are distressed but not defeated. So it's not too late. It, it's, they still have that wanting to care give, but they're asking for the right resources. And so part of that is giving them that actual voice. And Dr. Huddleston and I, we've worked together when we're working on system issues, we are a bit astounded at what we call learned helplessness. Because especially in healthcare, we've just, we're so regulated and we're so used to that regulation that we forget we have our voice. We're part of the system, we are the resources, we do have a voice. So we don't need to be helpless. Um, so part of this work is to band together um, and first of all, make sure everyone's self-aware. When are they starting to feel depleted and how do they measure that? One of the tools that we use is ProQual. It's been used in the research world for quite a while, um, but it's really can help you with what is, the, what is your level of burnout? What is your level of compassion fatigue? Um, are you actually experiencing trauma? Um, could be unrecognized trauma, could be secondary trauma. But if you're self-aware, you can self-advocate. And one of the things we're encountering though in self-advocacy is people are used to, again, this learned helplessness, 
there are system issues, but it's you're also part of the system. And so it's interesting when they start talking to folks and having them work through what's really going on. So many people have equated self-compassion with a deficit in caregiving, right? So that's because of this superhero phenomenon where I can't admit that I might need to care for myself. That's a weakness. Instead of realizing that that's actually a strength, if I care for myself, I can better care for patients. So it's changing the words and teaching people to self-advocate. So it's a two-pronged approach, and this is where working with Dr. Huston over the last five years, we were really tackling the system issues and that the system is broken. There, it's faulty, it's stressed. Healthcare delivery is not perfect. It has things wrong with it. Um, and people are working on that. And that's where she went back to school and got an engineering degree. Um, because as a clinician, she, she understood the clinical side, but what about the engineering side of healthcare delivery? And we've been working on that but there was this people side, the un, unaddressed resources, the people resources. And so how do we help them? So hence the H2 foundation. So we've got now um, what we're bringing to the healthcare system is both the system lens and then the people lens. And together we're hoping to fix um, where we have these stressors. So with the foundation, um, really kind of looking at that elephant in the room, what wasn't there? And some of it is just skills learning. Some of it is basic abilities, which I admit surprised me. Having grown up in healthcare, um, I work with some of the brightest people on the planet. It didn't occur to me at first that maybe there were some missing skills. Um, and so taking a step back and looking at what were some of those things that people needed. And one of them I'll talk about today is actually a, a a coping mechanism that's out there um, and it's called RAIN. And it's the first one is R, recognize. Um, and it's amazing how we, when we're so busy caretaking, we don't stop and recognize where we might be feeling or what we might be feeling depleted in. So creating that framework from a caretaker perspective and providing that. The next is behaviors. And again, when I, we look at what's being offered in healthcare for staff, they are often quick things. They're quick fix things. They're not things that you practice over time, which is what you need to build resiliency. So to build up your reservoir, you need practice. You need to reinforce it. Um, things like one of the um, hospitals I worked with, they're really making sure people take a walk, um, take a breather, get out of the workplace. But what they failed to mention was that you need to do it not just the one time. It should be all the time. So really kind of getting that behavior. Um, the next is community and community is the most important in this space. And it's really having that support and accountability but in particular with peers and small groups. So a lot of the self-help type um, resources that are out there will often tell you to turn to friends and family. And in starting to work with these communities, caregiving communities, um, working with uh, physicians, um, especially working with our first responders, our police and our uh, military, they don't wanna take it to friends and family. Um, they don't, they don't wanna share their work burdens, their caregiving burdens with their family. They don't wanna share the traumas they've seen with their family. So in this type of profession, when you're caring for others, 
the best support you can seek is those who understand you are in that community. But we don't see it built. And so how do we network and how do we help people connect to get that support and build that community prior to when you need it so that when you need it, it is there for you. And then there's sustainability. And this is something that um, really goes after um, the AA model, which is, you know, those when you get through those that are helping can help others. And so really it's not about a bunch of teachers or coaches who help each other. It's really, as you've been through it, you can um, help others. So if you've, if you've been through a traumatic situation, um, if take Dr. Huddleston's example, if you've been through a death, that person is the better individual to help another person who experiences that trauma. So um, it's really building this network with people who've been through those experiences. So how are we doing it? Well, we're starting out virtual. That's one thing COVID has done is helped us all learn all of these virtual tools. Um, so we have compiled these frameworks and these are the skills and abilities. So really helping people with um, how to remember things. So like the first one, RAIN, right? When I'm experiencing something of distress, how do I stop for a moment, recognize that distress, accept it as opposed to pushing it away, have some interest in it. Why am I feeling this way? And then non-identification is just because I feel this way doesn't mean it defines me. Um, that to me is the top thing we're seeing throughout um, in healthcare in particular. Um, the solutions if you're stressed are to give you something, like I said, that escape room or that um, you go to the room and you go get better um, and then come back and do your work. But at some point in order to heal, you have to acknowledge that you feel a certain way or you're experiencing a stressor. And so this is just a simple framework to teach people how to do that. So each of these are courses that we have, frameworks we have online. They have everything from, you can go in and quickly scan through them, or you can really get in depth and you can dive into some of the different tools and some of the different um, lessons with each one um, that comes with it. There's everything from videos to worksheets, um, all kinds of learning, but it's really, and then it's reinforced, it's really reinforced if you practice, right? So we've got a lot of, um, just behaviors that can help reinforce um, refueling your tank. And so everything from art to, to music to nature um, and spiritual, and this really gets to the mind, body, spirit. So some of the failures we've seen in the healthcare organizations in particular, where they've offered something, they didn't bring it all together for the individuals. They really didn't tackle the whole person, the whole human. So when I think about the car analogy, again, that'd be like, I got my oil changed, but I didn't fill it up with gas. So this is really making sure the whole maintenance of the individual is, is thought of. And then bringing that community support and strengthening that support. And that's my, my call to action now. We're, we're forming, we're, we're getting started in this foundation. We need the social support. We need people to actively participate in order to help each other. Now, again, I'm gonna go back to some science. There's some interesting science uh, when we're looking at the brains of caregivers. Um, in order to actually, if you're some of the most hurtful, hurt individuals or people who are suffering, 
they might seek some of these mind, body, spirit, they might seek some of the frameworks, but interestingly enough, their brain starts triggering when they give more compassion. So it seems a little counterintuitive, um, but the antidote for, I'm gonna skip ahead a quick, oh, sorry about that. The antidote for compassion fatigue is actually compassion. So this surprised me a bit when we were looking at the research, um, how our brains work, if you're in a caregiving capacity, is that if you get to do more compassion, you can heal yourself. And so your brain can start firing again, but you can't do it if you keep repeating the same pattern. So the interesting thing is you have to give compassion in a different capacity in order to rebuild that and turn it on. So that's hence our small groups. We're actually putting people who are hurting most into the mentorship role right out of the gate because they get to extend compassion right away. It's in a very different way than what they work, but it starts rebuilding that network or refiring in your brain um, what we're used to being that caregiving wiring. It also brings something familiar, right? So earlier in the talk, I talked about how when you are in that caretaking, um, you get into a mode, your body has a physiological response. And so if we can get you back into that space, it feels familiar to the caregiver. They, they're in that caregiving mode and therefore they can start to heal and recover. The big thing is just asking people to take one step. So sign up for a course, participate in a small group, help share our resources, share the message. Um, and then we are a nonprofit. So donating to make sure people can continue to participate. Um, it's, it's amazing to me that where in, especially in the healthcare realm, people start getting into, well, how much, how much money is it? What's it going to cost? I can't send, I can't take the time. It's like, we want everyone to be able to participate. We want everyone to be able to have these resources. So, um, we're, we're purposely doing this as a nonprofit, having others fund it, take care of our community, um, and help each other. So with that, I'll turn it over to our panel and, and Dr. Dunn, thank you for letting me spread this word and share this knowledge. Jeff, you're on Trying to get off mute here. I had some dogs barking there, Lacey. You heard my uh, my four-legged colleagues, uh, uh, so I had to uh, I had to kind of rein them in here a little bit. Uh, well, it, this is really really a great uh, opportunity for us to have some reactors that you actually recommended, which is just fantastic. So uh, I, I saw that Dr. Huddleston was on in the chat and. Uh, uh, it was great that she could, I know she's seeing patients. Um, uh, Jesse, make sure that I pronounce your name properly. Jesse Thielen uh, uh, is, uh, uh, has over 20 years of experience in project and program management and working in the military and private sector. Uh, and he has uh, undertaken a number of great projects, it sounds uh, uh, like uh, uh, 15 multinational projects. Uh, uh, and uh, he is uh, uh, the program manage management lead, uh, uh, data analytics and technology. Um, we are delighted to have Kai Corbett. Uh, uh, she has over 15 years of uh, related professional experience, including clinical nursing at Johns Hopkins, Holy Cross Hospital, Agent Place Consulting. Uh, well-rounded RN with experience in hospital nursing, 
oncology, med surge, critical care, hospice, and uh, we're delighted to have she's uh, have her join us. She's constantly seeking new evidence and practice improvement, uh, and uh, we are delighted to have her. We have Dr. Ross Martin, uh, Vice President of Professional Services, uh, 360 Degree Insights, and each one of you can add to your bio maybe when we go around the table here. Uh, and, and ask you to kind of share uh, a little bit more about your uh, experiences in the work. It sounds like, uh, uh, Dr. Martin, you're um, doing a lot in leadership, and uh, we can tell that the, what Lacey's described is really going to require our, our leaders to step up. Uh, Dr. Martin has worked as an obstetric house physician, urgent care physician, consultant in managed care, and healthcare technology. And uh, I know we also have uh, Heather Heather. Uh, 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 Heather Foster with us. Heather, are you going to have your camera on or are you going to join with us by audio? I know you're muted, but uh, Heather is an RN. Heather, over the last 24 months, uh, has been uh, has been with us uh, uh, doing a terrific job of helping us convert the NIH CDC guidelines to care methods and checklists for the family members of the 17 industry sectors we were serving of essential critical workers and the public general public uh, got pretty excited about uh, about what we were doing and we expanded the program to that and she's just been uh, terrific she's also a winner of the, uh, of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for her great work and, 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 and contributions. Um, uh, Jesse, would you like to start off and, and just react to what you heard and reinforce or, uh, or uh, develop some counterpoints to, to what Lacey's described? Uh, yes. Um, so I identify with everything she said. It was just like everything just hits home. I mean, from you know, my experiences in the military and one of the biggest problems that uh, that I believe there is, you know, it, from my experience is that the, these things, these, these burnouts just become normalized. And um, it's like, hey, buddy, you doing okay? And you're like, whatever, I'm fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you, you're not gonna do nothing for me or, you know, I got to do something by myself or, you know, so it's, you know, really, you know, I think that these, these steps and then empowering even the, the, the new people and, and groups to become, you know, uh, leaders to start with, to help their own, you know, healing as well as, you know, the, the healing of others. And, um, um, and some people respond that a lot and love that leadership role and just, just love to believe that they're helping somebody, you know, just because it is a caregiver thing that we're going on here. And so I, I think that's an amazing um, thing that she's put together. Um, well, I've got nothing but respect. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that uh, uh, that uh, Dr. Huddleston was able to join us today. And so uh, Dr. Huddleston has been a hospitalist. She's been the president of the Association of, uh, of Hospitalists. She uh, led the wonderful work that uh, of the article that was published that uh, I, I put up. And as Lacey had said, as I had said, uh, I got an engineering degree to really help us understand measurement and then tying these things together. I, I know uh, that uh, Dr. Hudson, you may be having to break back to see patients, but uh, we'd love to have you comment and 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 provide your perspective now in case you have to go back to patients. Gene, are you on?
I don't see her on. Uh, she said she could respond. Maybe she, maybe she's attending as a participant. So, uh, uh, so uh, Kai uh, Corbett, would you like to now make your comments? And we'll be, we'll, we have plenty of time to go around the table. So we'll all uh, be able to really have a chance to chat. Would you like to make your comments? Sure. So first off, I was very happy to listen Lacey's presentation because I heard a little bit about it, but you know, I think I get a little more comprehensive, you know, idea behind. And I really appreciate the thoughtfulness, you know, especially the system and the personal, you know, two-prong approach. I think that's like absolutely must. However, if I can already bring some you know, concerns, I don't know if that's going to be near enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like Jesse already touched on, you know, there's a serious culture issue mm -hmm. among the caregivers. And my biggest, you know, first concern is the resource. I mean, we already have the nursing and doctor shortage. Mm -hmm. And we are already asking them to take extra time to be compassionate for themselves. Sounds great, but you know, they have to keep working. And unless you can get the, you know, their employers to actually pay for that time to be compassionate, I don't think it's going to really work. I'm sorry, <laughs> based on my experience. No, that's exactly, I mean, first of all, thank you for that, Kai. That's why I asked you here, because I we need the help, right? We need to talk about the tough stuff. And that's exactly right. We can't, if we keep treating healthcare like a business, mm -hmm. and if the leaders keep treating it like, you know, it's a profit margin, we'll mm -hmm. never get there. Yep. Until the organizations, the systems also recognize that these humans are valuable resources. And if we don't start treating them like valuable resources, you're right. I mean, we can try our best, but it won't fix it. So I appreciate that. And we need to keep talking about it. Fantastic. And it's a great thought. You know, uh, I agree with you, Kai. And that's where we've really focused on boards because boards control the resources. And my late partner at Harvard, uh, at Harvard, uh, Clayton Christensen, and I were working on an article when he passed away about this issue of objectifying uh, our employees as cogs in a, in, a, in a machine, like their gears, and realizing that we're probably not measuring the right thing in business, that we need to measure that piece and our investment in these seemingly softer things that turn out to be pretty valuable things. So I agree, I agree with the fact that it's not going to work systemically across all of healthcare until we get the leaders who control the dollars to realize it's a great investment. And when they start to really invest in their people, I think it'll have an enormous impact, but that's at the beginning of the beginning. And anyway, enough of my comments, Dr. Martin, your thoughts, and then we'll go to Dr. Huddleston because we know that she's on and we'll come back to uh, Heather, Heather, um, uh, Heather Foster, Dr. Martin. Well, thanks for the opportunity and, and thank you, Lacey, for the presentation. Uh, Lacey and I have done a lot of work together in the past on informatics-related things in healthcare uh, in her capacity at Mayo. I've always been impressed with her um, her project management uh, superpowers of, of getting things done. And this is just another example of when I, when I see that this very uh, massive challenge is in the hands of someone so capable, it gives me a lot of uh, encouragement just 
foundationally for it. Um, Charles, something that you just mentioned about measuring I, was one of the comments I was going to make. You are what you measure. And, uh, and if, if we are not really taking into account what, uh, what, what impact is, is being felt by our caregivers, both providers, you know, provider caregivers and patient caregivers uh, who are not clinicians, and all of the you know, essential worker type folks who make the system work, if we're not really keeping our fingers on that pulse of their well-being, we're gonna miss this. Uh, and when I also think about this, very much related to that measurement is every system, be it organic or business, works on feedback loops. When you, when you, and there, you know, and, and we know the more, the deeper we delve into the biochemistry of the human body and of, of uh, planetary systems and galactic systems, we know that every action has a counter, you know, that every feedback loop has a counter feedback loop. And that's when we have that homeostasis of balance, that is what gets us working well. And I, I we have to we have to build that into the system at a systems level. That uh, analogy that Lacey used about the you know the timeout room, the place that little sanctuary kind of place. Um, you know, I'm I'm thinking of if it, one thing would be to measure its use, but also if it's not being used, do you understand why? Because it just because you put it there does it doesn't mean that it's acceptable. You know, it could be viewed as a, a sign of weakness among the among the caregivers there. Uh, there. There are lots of things behind that. So you have to, these the way you measure this is going to be pretty challenging. The other thought that came to mind, and I don't know if this is um, a critique, but or a, a, just an observation. Um, when you think about all the stressors that have, that have come onto people, as Lacey said, before COVID, but especially COVID punctuating these, these challenges, when you add on the layer of the uh, historic, historically disadvantaged people groups in America, people of color, people who don't uh, conform to gender norms and, and sexual orientation norms in, in our society, that has uh, elevated them uh, they, they, are, they are the pointy end of the stick on this challenge because they have been undergoing those challenges for uh, to an even greater degree. And I just, and I don't want to be critical, uh, uh, but I was watching the slides that um, were presented and the number of people of color, for example, that were represented in those images were a micro fraction of our historic, our societal actualities, and so it's just something to be thinking about: are we are we telling the stories of everyone, and are we um, are we really taking that all into account? And so it's it's those are those are my two big observations: system level measurements and and feedback loops, and then really thinking about underrepresented populations and all of this. Thank you. Great, and we'll have a chance to come back to everyone. I'm putting the the uh, the screen up, uh, but it sounds like uh, uh, Jean Huddleston will be able to be on camera. So I'm going to now stop sharing and ask uh, uh, Jean to uh, to comment. 
Uh, uh, Jean, wonderful having you. Uh, your ears might have been burning. I always say that you're the next Don Berwick and uh, uh, oh, your wonderful, enough. wonderful work. I can remember, just so that you all know, uh, uh, Steve Swenson, Dr. Steve Swenson, who was formerly the chair of radiology, then he was the chair of, uh, or the leader of quality and safety at Mayo, and then he went on to the succession planning and then wrote the real pivotal piece on uh, or book, a tome on, on, on burnout, who's now retired, introduced us. And he said, listen, he said, uh, can you help this wonderful doctor at the Mayo Clinic named Heather, named uh, 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 Jean Huddleston, and, uh, and told me about her. And uh, I was so thrilled that you got to, we had the honor of publishing your first, uh, first article. So, uh, and every year you've done greater and greater things. And we're so proud of you, Jean. Thank you so much. And what you're doing with Lacey. So your thoughts. Well, first of all, Lacey is the yin to my yang, and uh, we're two perfect puzzle pieces that fit together in the slide that she had of the engineering gear on one side and the brain on the other is a perfect representation. And uh, HB Healthcare Safety, the company that we co-founded is a social benefit corporation to take Mayo's work and the things that we're learning, all of these things out, uh, is going to be hopefully the first of many organizations that will take this on on behalf of the foundation and support it. So every collaborative member who every healthcare system that participates with the collaborative, our social benefit corporation will financially support any employee to do this work and will financially support any employee who's going through the training process for the safety learning system to participate in the small groups. Because I believe that the small groups is where the healing is going to take place and where we can actually have conversations together. We see it in our committees where people do the reviews and come together. Those committees that are talking about cases when they were told to stop meeting during the last surge, refuse to stop meeting because they needed to come, wanted to come together and share what they were experiencing on the wards. They are their own little small group. We've never called it that, but that's what they become. And so giving them a chance, so we've, and we've also integrated two of the small group sessions into SLS specific work, where anyone going through the training will get to participate in those sessions um, for personal development, leadership development, coaching of each other and all the magic that happens within small groups. So we're really excited to participate in the growth and the spread of this incredibly important heart healing and healing of healthcare from within. No leader, no organizational set of leadership, no government is going to help us heal. We have to own our own hearts and souls with support from each other. And I believe that this is an incredibly powerful way to begin that journey and plant a very special type of healing within healthcare. Dean, may I ask you a question? And, and we'll go back to Lacey to let, cause we've got plenty of time. Uh, Jean, you're, you're kind of our resident expert in measurement and especially in measuring new things that we haven't measured forever, right? And uh, uh, Dr. Martin, I'll, uh, you know, address this important area as well as measurement. Um, 
what's the idea of measuring the impact of this great work you and Lacey and Lacey's leading so that we, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that will I be able to take an argument to uh, and a pitch to boards of directors that are non-clinical to say, this is the number one, you need to invest in this. You need yeah. to take some of that money that you might be putting into billboards or parking lots or whatever else and th there's, a, there's a there's a cash on cash return in terms of engagement, resilience, retention, and you know, all the, the things that are critically important in the HR area. Will there be an R&D sort of function so that yeah. I can take that to boards? Because I firmly believe, and I, I'm with Kai, and that this is not going to happen across America unless there's the fuel to do it and the commitment by yep. leaders. But I know personally, if I get a board member's attention, and they understand that they can in one in one swoop in one meeting can say you fund that. Yep. So yes, absolutely. In partnership with our colleagues uh, who were on the session with me last month in Vancouver, they are beginning the qualitative study of this. And Lacey's introduced the ProQual into this from the quantitative. So we have protocols in progress to take to all of the hospitals that are participating in the collaborative. And if you think of over 150 hospitals uh, who, who have people that we can interact with, we can get a pretty good research sample size going pretty quickly. And we will do a mixed method, quantitative and qualitative in a prospective fashion by measuring before our groups get started in the hospitals, having them do the small group personal development training as part of SLS, plus form their own small groups internally to discuss the hardest cases within their organizations and then measure six months later. I am a completely different human being and, and clinician at the bedside because of these things. And I'm watching other people have the same experience. I can't, I mean, I, I don't know what the results will be. It'll be a prospective study, but we will have uh, an answer to that for you. Fantastic, fantastic. Because you know you almost want to have a total cost of ownership of a three-year program and say, here's a, a here are the dark green dollars, the light green dollars. Now you know because everybody's focused on retention and they're having to pay traveling nurses and that kind of thing. So so Lacey, your comments, and we'll go back to Jesse after uh, Lacey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I appreciate all of the comments and, and Ross, I'm going to talk about the diversity. Yes, that that is one of them that we're concerned about both in that's why the small groups are inherent in it, because people need to identify and they in order to have that support and accountability network, they have to have people they trust. And so I've, I'm being very non-prescriptive in what those small groups are on purpose so that they can form themselves and so that they can be what people need them to be. Um, and very grateful for the safety learning system collaborative for people to, it, it is just inherently in that collaborative, it's organic. And so being able to offer it, but then see what people do with it. Um, but they they really do have to own it. That That's kind of the, the key. Um, but I do hope with the frameworks, the frameworks to me are something that I, I'm just, if I can get people to just take a moment and get over kind of that learned helplessness and just seek a resource because it's just that little baby step that people need. Um, I, I see it all the time, every day, people just, I'm overworked, I'm overburdened. And I was myself. Um, honestly, a lot of this that I've done is my own healing. Um, Jean's smiling because she knows what I've been through. Um, and it just, once I took that little step and I had a framework, 
every day I could work on it just a little bit. And so I finally got over that and I, my compassion in my brain started to build again. So it's getting people just enough information and getting them just enough resources so they can start moving, taking those little steps. Otherwise you do, you just backtrack and you keep, it keeps getting worse. And that's when people are leaving. That's when these bad things are happening. So it's trying to rescue it just in time. Um, and the only way to do that is to care enough to say it can be better and to get the word out. Yeah, Lacey, I'll come back to you because we do have the time to talk about how one might run a small group if they were to start one. But I, I did want to uh, uh, address a, a couple things. One of them is this idea, do these small groups work? And the answer is, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, and you can tell how much that you've used the sort of framework that the Saddleback Church has used, but, uh, but I'll give you another one. And uh, Christopher Peabody, Toff Peabody, who was a third-year medical student when I was at Harvard as an uh, advanced leadership fellow, came up to me after um, I gave a talk, and he said, I'd really love to work with you on patient safety. And he's been working with us now for over 12 years and is now the director of the Innovation Center at UCSF. Uh, as and he's an emergency medicine doc. Now he went he went through the residency program that Code Black was built on, where they had CBOOT, and it, it's the most intense emergency department in the country. Um, and they were recognizing during his residency that people were losing track of the reason they were going. They went into medicine that they were you know they were just so fatigued and they were so burned out and they were just they wanted to hang on to why they got in that in the first place. And he started a program called Dream Teams, and they met like the small groups just to revitalize why they went into emergency medicine and then what they wanted to do after just to be able to bring themselves back to that. So, and that small group initiative worked really, really, uh, really well. So Jesse, your thoughts and comments after you're hearing some of the other thoughts. Jesse, are you there? Are you on mute? Yeah, you're on mute. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, is there any uh, data to how much these programs can actually increase retention? I know it's a grandiose idea and it definitely can, but is that something that there's any current data for or something that we pursue? Um, no, the, the one data we do have is that for it's it's what Ross said, we need to measure different things. So the interesting thing is, and Jean's got some data, <laughs> but the interesting thing with just most healthcare HR data is that people are saying that, you know, they might be satisfied with their job. They might even be satisfied with their pay, but if there's this moral dissonance, that's what's making them leave. So we know why they're leaving. So the question is, can we, if the small groups can actually help them retain that moral, you know, connection to the work they went into, our hypothesis is that will keep them retained. Now, I can't promise they'll keep them retained in that organization, but can we at least keep them in a caregiving capacity? Um, which is where I believe that the combination of what we're doing with the human and the system, both have to happen. Um, my favorite line in, uh, Chuck and Lacey have heard it a thousand times is you can teach me to do deep breathing exercises all day long. But if I can't get my patient to the ICU, I'm not leaving the bedside. I'm just not, which means I'm not going home, which means I miss another dinner, 
which means everyone's unhappy and I'm tired when I get home, which means I get less sleep and I'm less energized the following morning and the cycle repeats. We must fix the systems of delivery and healthcare, but we can't just do that. We've seen the self, the learned helplessness that we've seen is so striking. Ideas that we suggest to fix something. Oh, we can't do that. We've tried. Oh, we, no, no, can't do that. We've tried. But when you put the two of them together, when we've got their small groups, which they don't know that that's what we did to them, we put them in small groups and then they fix something and now they want to keep meeting and now they want to stay. So there's, there's a there there. The data that I have is one of the things that Mayo did for retention of physicians before COVID. So Dr. Swenson was working on the book. And so before COVID is they created what they call them. There were small groups of physicians who had similarities. So my husband and I were part of ones where there were physician couples and we got together once a month, rotated homes, went to a restaurant, whatever it was, there was a group, every division and department had it. And those who participated in those small groups and just got together and talked about shared things had a remarkable statistical de decrease in their burnout, which is what they were measuring. I would call it fatigue. I, there's an energy that happens when you're sharing a similar experience, a shared experience and learning from each other and how we've all dealt with it. You get stronger, you, you, you fill your cup in a way. And so that's the only data that I'm aware of were these groups that Mayo formed where physicians had similar experiences to each other and had people like them that they could sit and talk with once a month. And Mayo actually paid us for a meal once a month. And, and I just want to throw in here that uh, not only did they pay for the meal, but they did an ROI analysis and it was a positive invest. It was a positive ROI to invest in your meals. I thought that was really cool that they measured it, but that's a cheap chief operating officer and a chief financial officer. And, and, and I love the fact that Mayo would have finance people, not the people running the study. So, uh, and, and because that made the, 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 the information so much more believable and that it was a separate analysis. And we did many of those with Steve over the years in patient safety and Mayo was getting a five to 15 to one ROI on quality improvement programs as measured by finance people uh, uh, properly which I thought was fantastic. Uh, Heather, are you, are, are you able to unmute and, and comment? I think Heather may be on, there we go. So Heather, Heather uh, Foster uh, is uh, a terrific uh, nurse. She has been a, a steadfast supporter of our, uh, our communities of practice. And as I, I mentioned, she's one of the winners of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. Um, uh, Heather's an RN, she, uh, she hails from uh, Colorado. Uh, your thoughts, Heather, you're serving patients in a smaller community. Yes, hi, thank you, Chuck. Um, as I listen to this, I'm reminded of just, just this week, we've had um, in a small hospital, three nurses resign. Um, mostly because of the workload. Um, so yeah, I think COVID has just kind of tipped the apple crate, so to speak. We are, I think on all levels of um, the healthcare system from housekeeping to the ER physician that meets the patient. Um, I, my husband's a PA, so we kind of, um, let off steam, but we even, we even believe that that was 
having a huge effect on our family. Um, so now we, we kind of make time uh, away from the kids if we feel like we need a vent. Um, we have a night shift crew that recently developed a small group. We took it upon ourselves and we work out for an hour and a half and we have a um, incredible instructor who literally um, helps us bring it out. And so that has been a huge, not only a bonding experience for all of us, but it gives us this shared space where we, we can feel vulnerable. Um, I believe that um, that is something our leaders are fearful of is, is having their healthcare workers feel vulnerable and um, they don't know what to do with that. And like, like somebody said earlier, it, it's, it's a given that this is something that you guys have to deal with in your own time. Um, I, and like you said, until that culture changes, I think you're going to continue to see um, low retention rates, um, increased medical errors, um, and, and a whole slew of other things that we um, can all agree on. So yeah, Chuck, I think um, this is the prime time. It's the tipping point. Um, we're looking at a potential 3 million shortage of nurses by 2030. Um, our patients are already in the crosshairs um, and um, the nursing community has been devastated by the, the recent verdict for uh, Nurse Voigt and um, from Vanderbilt. We just were shocked. And just as we think we're making strides, um, something like this happens. So um, I think it's prime time. Fantastic. Uh, and I will go to you next, but I, I just will, I, I will tell you that uh, in our 3100 hospital network uh, that, um, uh, you know, th this, 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 the fact that the hospital did not report the death, reported the death as natural causes, did not report it to, to, to CMS that the nurse in a clear systems failures with overrides over and over and over again, risky behaviors, I can't say, I don't know, but having done, done a lot of study of many of these cases, um, there is such distrust in our nursing community, Lacey and, 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 and Jean, you know, and, and, the, and I'm going to use an expression that is, is offensive to some people, but sharks in suits, the belief that the mid-level managers that, that maybe the board and the CEOs can espouse all of the core values, but down at the people that are actually applying the budgets and, and, and the schedules, that they're mercenaries and that they don't care that they didn't have PPE and they didn't don't care that they're tired and they don't care that they're having medication errors. We have a fundamental problem of, of, uh, of an, an ethics problem at mid-level management and in many of our hospitals that is the, you know, I love your elephant in the room slide. Uh, we got a big problem there. Is it, can we just have learned helplessness and say, okay, since there's a lot of corruption in this area, we can't do anything? No, I don't believe that. I do believe that we have to have mainstream market beachheads that others will we want to be like, and then Gene have the data to be able to show ethically investing in and really meaning to support the mind, body, spirit of our healthcare workers in a legitimate way, not in a BS way, not in a, oh, we got another safety program. I can, I've been doing this 37 years, I got to tell you. The number of hospitals that I saw put a quote patient safety program in so they could have a check mark and didn't do anything any differently 
-hmm. way outweighs the ones that legitimately said, yeah, we got to have a problem. And the number one driver that we saw in those that changed were those that had a catastrophic event and a big lawsuit. I mean, that was the number one driver to have a come to Jesus meeting to, uh, you know, to focus on it. So I don't want to be a downer here, but I have to tell you, I agree with you, Kai, there's a, there's a resource issue, but there's a cultural cancer right now that's focused on profitability that is, was only intensified by the last 24 months. And we just have, and that's the elephant in the room that I see. The solution I see though, are board members and Gene, if you guys can have some R&D, show a cash on cash return and show we're doing the right thing and that we can have retention, recruitment, and that we can have better patient satisfaction and we can beat the other guys in town because we deliver better care, you've got the attention of the boards. But Lacey, any comments there? Or uh, Kai, I wanna go to you and then we'll come back. Uh, I wanna make sure everybody gets equal chance to talk. But uh, but that's the elephant in the room in my, in my book, Kai. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so happy to hear your comment, Chuck, about this uh, Vanderbilt nurse incident. I've been outraged, and this is going to have a devastating effect for the patient safety because most of the nurses and even doctors probably not going to admit they have any kind of error or near misses even. And that's just such a horror, you know, picture, right? And thank you so much, uh, Heather, to bring this up. Um, so yeah, I'm just so happy to be here, actually. Yeah, because you kind of contrasted, you know, the different approach. Because to be honest, I've been very pessimistic, you know, like the what embodied by Vanderbilt. It just seems like the big healthcare institutions model is based on the premise of they can exploit caregivers, caring heart, and self-sacrifice. So that's, you know, it's very, very heavy because, you know, we are wired, like Lacey pointed out, to care and make a difference. And they totally exploit it. Yes, I agree Love with that you. Work, Kai. That was just a great word. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and really, you know, we're doing a lot of work separately in, in our emerging threats program on, uh, on the insider threats. And one of the things that we recognize is, is that, you know, anywhere between two and 10% of people are sociopathic. We know it from the, you know, the <laughs> curves, right? And, and, they're pre and they will prey on the vulnerable. And caregivers are pretty darn vulnerable because they know the sweet spot is, the care of the patient and 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 however i think this can be overcome the good can overcome the evil when we've got really good board members and we and they and they and they tell the chief the, the chief general counsel the chief operating officer and the chief financial officer no we're going to focus on this and that's where i want to help eugene and lacy with this to be able to kind of because they listen to us you know we've talked to them i've had predators go after me we've all had uh, all these different things uh, uh, happen and enough is enough so um but we need to put the money there and the focus but not the learned helplessness is i think a great expression because so many are just saying oh well they threw up their hands on COVID. like we celebrated that the caregivers were great in the first couple of months and then like out of sight out of mind and they're suffering terribly so ross your thoughts and comments and we have plenty of time to go around to everybody so ross your thoughts wow uh, uh there have been uh, just a gatling gun of really interesting and powerful uh sentiments expressed in the last in these last few minutes uh so i'm still processing that a bit i i go 
I think back a little bit on the comment I made about systems and feedback loops, and maybe maybe putting a finer point on that for a minute about where when we measure what we measure, you know, you think about things like suicide um, and and departure, uh, somebody leaving leaving uh, measuring those things. Those those are the after effects. Those are the the if you think about the leading indicators versus the lagging indicators. Those those are the bad outcomes at the end of a much longer process. And if we can really get good on thinking about what are those what are those early sentinel warnings? Um, you know, I, I when I think about the pandemic debates that have gone on, and I, I it's amazing to me that 24 months into this, we're still hearing from people that lo are looking at hospitalizations as though it's a leading indicator of something instead of, or, right. or deaths as a leading indicator instead of looking way way up like uh, what's what we're starting to see now um, monitoring the waste the the municipal waste systems for measuring covid because that's a great early indicator of what's happening and using those as your action central what are those maybe i'm thinking out loud here so apologies if this is not a great analogy but what what is the the sewage of this that, that we could monitor early on that says when this starts happening in our systems um we we should be really paying attention to those signals and and it's it's maybe not a very useful measure right now because we are in the midst of the crisis, not somewhere you know where we're waiting for the next wave of challenge. So we know that this the the burnout and the fatigue and and the stressors and the terrible after effects of that are happening right now. Um, so, but we do need to think about how how we start really being proactive, excuse me for using the overused word, but but proactive in, in measuring things early on that can make a difference here. But I'm I'm really interested in, in uh, the other thing I kind of have a question back to Lacey and Dr. Huddleston perhaps is, uh, you know, Mayo Clinic is a not-for-profit, which doesn't mean a lot in terms of, you know, it's a tax status. They're still very focused on revenue. Um, but even in that environment, which has this long history of having kind of the right attitude about caregiving and healthcare as a system and all those great things, they're still have, this, have some of these drivers. How do you translate that into the uh, for-profit sector? Uh, and and the, you know, one of the fundamental problems we kind of touched on about healthcare being so business-minded in when when the drivers of healthcare fundamentally don't work in a for-profit environment, right? So so how do we how do we turn how do we turn the lens of humanity onto this complex system when all the gears are going the other direction? That's so, kind of so let's uh, so uh, uh, Jean go go first and then I've got a comment and a question for Lacey to come back on machinery. You want to comment, uh, 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 Jean, on on what Ross just said? I was Lacey can't tell I'm making eye contact with her nope. pictures right now. Um, I, I at your request I I will. I believe that there will not be a thou shall sweeping change. I believe it has to be colleague to colleague. 
and that we have to dare to own medicine again, us. Which means we have to inspire and influence and lead up, which our skill sets were not taught, which is what we're doing with SLS. So when this whole mortality review thing started in 2003, it started by three docs and one nurse who were fed up with doing cotty and collapsy when everything else was falling, falling and going sideways every time we worked. But what we decided to do was own the fact that leadership wasn't changing what we needed changing because the way we talk, the language we use when we're in the middle of our temper tantrums or in the middle of our reactionary um, feelings to a patient dying because I can't get them to the ICU. When we talk from that place, we're emotional. It's a one-off. It's a anecdote. It's whining. It's, it's whatever it happens to be. So we started this work as a way to name, define, and quantify the things that we as frontline care providers thought needed to be fixed for our patients by honoring our patients' lives. We chose a different lens and we chose to communicate in a way that our leadership could hear us. I can't go to Germany and speak English and expect everyone to understand me because they might not all speak English. So I can't speak to my leaders in my language. They're not going to hear me. I have to speak to them in their language. I have to have the humility and the emotional intelligence and the partnerships across the disciplines to carry that forward so they can have a better shot. They still might not hear me, but they have a better shot of hearing me. And we have a better shot of getting what we need for our patients. I believe we have inside healthcare have to step up and own our professions. We're professionals and we gotta own it. And frankly, take it back. That's where I am. And that's where, that's the, the energy and what I say out loud when we're training all of these hospitals that are joining, their leaders hear it. And they know that these groups that Lacey's leading are frontline providers, it's not middle management. We're teaching people how to have a voice and how to heal. And I believe healthcare needs to heal from the inside. Oh boy, Jean, what fantastic comments. And uh, you, you know, agree 100 and, you know, zillion percent. I mean, absolutely. We are professions. And the, the other thing is, is that uh, it's important for people to, to, to realize that uh, that it, the, the ROI is there. One of the stories that we told over and over again, Ross, was the cogs don't all align just for profit. I can remember when uh, Geisinger decided to warranty their cardiovascular surgery. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but they took 365 steps that were important to do a, a, an elective cardiac coronary bypass, but then identified the 40 or so that are absolutely critical. And they said, let's have one measure. One measure is, how many patients did we do all 40 of the critical 365 that uh, that a cardiothoracic resident should know all 365 in what order, but the 40 that are mission critical? Just by focusing on those, they were able to generate enormous profitability by going back and warranting their cases. And I, I think because of tort reform, and I used to be a guy that was supportive of it, it has destroyed the patient safety movement across the country. Hospitals are operating as if there are no speeding tickets anymore, 
uh, we in my own community here, uh, an award, a 10-figure award in a state that has a 250,000 cap. Why? The hospital was covering up that they had, had a surgeon operating with MRSA and he was contaminating patients, but he was generating a lot of cash for the hospital. And so there's a lot of this kind, you know, I, I think we, as you said, Gene, we can turn the tables on this by owning it, using their language and their measures. And I know I'll get a lot of flack for this, but I will tell you that everybody that we talk to, we, the quality of the HR leaders has diminished over the last decade. Instead of being there to help people in HR, they are now part of the defense system for the economics of the organization, as is risk management. We got to get back. We got to get in that game and be able to show them these are measures, and and these are the positive things we can do that actually generate impact. Uh, you know, on the hospitals, and so uh, we re and we're working with them on this. This is an area of R and D where we're doing a tremendous amount of work. But I want to come back to Lacey and talk about just operationalizing a small a small group. Like, just take us through, you know, from what you know today, if somebody were to adopt your program and they wanted to start a small group, how frequently do they meet? How much time? How, how hard is it? It's a lot easier than people think, isn't it? it yes, it is a lot easier. Um, and, and like Jean stated too, what we saw in the collaborative is it's the one healing activity people have, and so they do it, right? And, and Heather, I appreciate the one thing too is that we talked a lot about the system, the healthcare system. A lot of our work is also not just healthcare, right? So we're working with teachers, we're working with um, the police, we're working with first responders. So we're working and with other people and they're all the same. They all need a safe place that they trust with people who understand them and they can get together. And we actually have more success having them get together outside of their system, right? So the minute I say, hey, let's have a small group in the healthcare setting, everyone freaks out. Um, so we do try to help navigate. The first thing is to find out what people need. We survey for what kind of person they are. Um, if you're in the collaborative, you're used to my, I do a critter assessment. <laughs> I figure out what kind of change type person you are. Um, so, and then we, we form that small group around. So it's kind of like a dating service for healing in healthcare. <laughs> um, but it's super easy. And once you start getting that benefit from it, um, you, you'd keep doing it, right? It, it becomes that practice. I did want to address Mary too. Learned helplessness means when you've given up. It means when you allow the system to beat you down and you keep using that as an excuse. And when Jean talks about owning it, I feel that very passionately too. Um, and actually, so Ross, one of my first precursors to know that it's not going to work in an organization is when they don't let me talk to frontline. I know when I go in, if they won't let me talk to the frontline, it's not going to work. Um, but if they let me talk to the front line, I know I can have success. So that's usually my first precursor. Fantastic. And just one question. So how much in a typical month, how many hours would a small group meet? It isn't an incredible most, amount of investment. Most people meet for um, once a month is all they do. And it's kind of fascinating. It's, it's no different than um, the research that shows that just walking outside one time a week into nature for 20 minutes is all you need for the whole week to be refreshed. It's no different with small groups. We're finding that just 30 minutes in a month can refresh people and keep their motivation going. Listen, we want to have you back because the the study on compassion and how uh, that's the treatment for uh, the, 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 the burnout and compassion, that, that was so cool. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back. I want to go around the table and give everybody a final, final word. Jesse? 
Um, I guess um, it's kind of going back a little bit to uh, Russ. Um, I think he said something about uh, recognize. How do you recognize the burnout? I mean, some people are stubborn; they don't want to. You know, just like uh, Dr. Huddleston said, you know, I have a patient to treat. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to. Is there like? Yep. That's where I do recommend the ProQual, and that's a study that's been around for a long time. Um, it's open source, but and there's we've broken it down into some different components. So it's about five questions each. Um, and we encourage people to keep track of themselves, right? So it doesn't need to be public, it doesn't need to be shared, but just kind of like I'm keeping track, you know, I weigh myself every once in a while. Um, I'm gonna check my my compassion fatigue. Um, so it, it can be done simply as well, but it does need to be a practiced thing. Yeah. Fantastic. Kai? Yes. So if I can ask uh, maybe a, a question, um, I kind of feel one perhaps missing piece might be to um, incorporate patient engagement to this. Yep. In the yeah. yeah. I knew you were going to bring that up, Kai, and I'm so glad you did. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, you know, no, no, not it's my bio, but, you know, after burnout, I, you know, left and I became patient advocate now. So I really feel lots of people, lots of patients are engaged and could be really part of a um, care, you know, giver team, you know, as long as both knows the boundaries and how to respect each other, it could be awesome asset. I think you probably want to take advantage of that. Not yep. every patient, of course, but. No, and that's the other thing about the small groups. So while we're targeting people who need the healing and caregiving, those who are participating, we don't limit it. So anyone can participate. Um, the other thing is we're all patients, right? So at some point or another, we're all in that space. We're, um, so it, it absolutely, we need the patient. The other thing is if you're in caregiving and you can hear from patients how your work is of value, there's just nothing more motivating. So um, partnering patients with caregivers is a huge uh, benefit. Um, I mean, like specifically, do you think it's going to be possible for the caregiver to be not offended if patient asks, so what medication are you giving me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's two folds, right? So there's one of, I think there's just the experience side, right? And how we work with each other and navigate. Um, I think in the healing side, though, we're all humans and healing together, patients and caregivers can heal in the same space. Absolutely. Great comment. We'll have to, we always want to promise to finish on time, but uh, we will have you back. This was terrific. Ross, I want to give you uh, a last word. Just want to say thank you for letting me be a part of this, Lacey and, and Charles and other and great to hear from everybody. I uh, the last comment is just the Society for Participatory Medicine uh, would be a great partner in all of this. Uh, they're they're all about the patient caregiver dyad and uh, uh, and patient provider dyad, excuse me, and uh, would be a great uh, additional resource in here if you aren't already familiar with them. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Heather, would you have a final thought? Uh, I just appreciate Dr. Huddleston's comment earlier on owning it. Um, I, I've noticed a difference between nurses who, who kind of have self-compassion and then they're able to give that to their patients. There's a huge element there of emotional intelligence that's required um, and a lot of work on our part if we wanna heal. 
Um, I remember a director recently saying, compassion's great, but I can't measure it. Well, I beg to differ with her on many levels because <laughs> it's reflected in many, um, um, in, in many stats. So with that being said, I wanna thank everybody for their contribution. Um, it really validates us as healthcare workers when we can have this conversation. So thank you all. Great, and uh, Jean, would you like to have a last word? Thank you. Um, and thank you to Lacey for continuing to move this forward. Her energy and passion, she's using every aspect of its of her shape and her own healing. And it is an inspirational journey to watch. So Lacey, uh, the, my favorite uh, expression when we close our events is uh, fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. I know we can, and I know it can be a different, we make a difference. We always say everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. And uh, so we, uh, we try to close everything with that. I have uh, a short clip from, uh, from Jennifer uh, and we'll close and thank you all. God bless all of you. I really think this was uh, just terrific and uh, I learned a lot and I can't wait to go back. Thank you, Dr. Denham. What a program. As a person of faith, this was very inspirational to myself. I'm sure many people here are people of faith, of their own faith. And I encourage everybody here to please share the taping of this webinar with all of your colleagues, families, friends, neighbors. And, and this is just such great stuff. This is so important. And again, our caregivers really, really need care. And this was just really great. Thank you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, our speakers. And God bless everyone here. See you next month. Thank you all. Terrific job. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, see the rest of uh, you all next month. Bye-bye.